Well, you've heard the expression, I'm sure, the calm before the storm, the calm before the storm. But I wonder if it just seems calm in comparison to the deafening roar when the storm arrives. Some of you may have experienced this firsthand. Have you ever been going about your business peacefully and then a thunderclap startles you, makes your heart skip a beat? When I was in middle school, I lived in Anoka, Minnesota, which is known as one of the tornado alleys, and we experienced many tornado warnings and tornado watches. Thankfully, I never had a close encounter with one of these fearsome and fascinating twisters. But I've heard that the sound of a tornado is almost just as terrifying as the arrival of the tornado itself. It's been described as an oncoming freight train or a jet engine as it whirs and grumbles and hisses its way towards you. Are there any sounds that would cause your heart to melt in fear? Are there any sounds that could cause your heart to melt in fear? Maybe it's the shattering of a window in the middle of the night. Or as you're driving, you hear two cars nearby collide. A couple of weeks ago, in the middle of the night, I thought I heard one of our kids fall out of their bunk bed with a loud thud. And I jumped up so suddenly that I think I startled Ashley half to death. Turns out Sam's fan had just fallen over. But because of the surprise, I was unable to fall back asleep for at least a couple hours afterwards. Friends, the sound that the Lord has for us today is no mere fan falling in the middle of the night. And it's not the sound of your stomach rumbling because it feels like 12 o'clock. These next three weeks, I pray that we will be jolted out of our spiritual sleep, out of our apathy and even spiritual laziness by the roar that comes from the word of the Lord through the prophet Amos. Listen now to the word of the Lord through the prophet Amos from Amos 1.1. The words of Amos who is one of the sheep breeders from Tekoa, what he saw regarding Israel in the days of King Uzziah of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Amos was from Tekoa, a small town in Judah. So Amos is a Judean sent to Israel. It'd be kind of like someone who is on Fox News trying to get the attention of someone at the New York Times. It had been 170 years since Judah in the south and Israel in the north had been unified. Judah and Israel had different customs, uh, different cultures, places of worship, different allies, different enemies, and as we learn in Amos 1.1, different kings. Not only is Amos a fish out of water, leaving Judah to travel north to Israel, 
but he's not the normal prophet type. He's not the son of a prophet or the son of a priest. He carried no, no formal training or pedigree to commend himself to his northern neighbors. The Lord chose a sheep breeder. Not the prophet we would expect for such a message as this. Let's listen to his message. Amos 1-2 is a good summary of the whole thing. He, that is Amos, said, The Lord roars from Zion and makes his voice heard from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the summit of Carmel withers. Amos pictures Yahweh, the Lord, as the divine predator on the prowl. This whole section that we will consider this morning from chapter 1, verse 1, or 1, verse 2, to chapter 3, verse 8, is bracketed with this roar of the Lord like a lion. And the Lord is not only roaring in judgment against the wicked nations, the Lord has come for his own. Now, Israel must have assumed that the Lord was on her side. They're the chosen people of the Lord. They had built their own places of worship. Things were going really well for Israel at this time. They were at peace. Israel was at peace with her neighbors. They're rebuilding and prospering. Uh, The economy was good. The king's approval ratings were up. And then Amos comes along. He says, what's up, guys? The Lord is roaring like a lion, ready to rain fire down in judgment. The Lord's roar spells mourning for the shepherds, that is the kings of Israel, and drought coming to the most verdant places of plenty, like the top of Mount Carmel, which had known such blessing before. This is an unexpected message by an unexpected messenger at an unexpected time. Surprise! The Lord isn't on your side, Israel. Surprise! He's against you. Welcome to Amos. We're going to see over the next three weeks that the Lord's judgment is certain. God's judgment against his people is well-deserved. We'll see the catalog of crimes. But ironically, God's judgment is good. For in God's holy judgment against evil, we see his concern for true justice. In a world filled with wickedness, true justice is found in the name and in the word of the Lord. True justice is found in the name and the word of the Lord. Here is my big idea for you this morning. In a wicked world, fear the just judge. In a wicked world, fear the just judge. We will see that our just judge comes with a roar of judgment against outsiders and insiders alike, no matter who you are. So in this world where we're looking for love, comfort, peace, happiness, This message surprises us this morning. The Lord is coming with his word against all who have turned against him. But ironically, again, this should give all who fear the Lord hope for vindication and for justice. So I have two points, two simple points this morning. The Lord's roar against outsiders. The Lord's roar against outsiders. And then the Lord's roar against insiders. Let's consider first the God's roar against outsiders. We see that chapter 1, verse 3, to chapter 2, verse 3. Amos prophesied in 
around 760 BC, so 8th century BC. So it shouldn't surprise us that many of the names and the places that we're going to read about this morning are foreign to us. They're from a place far away, a time long ago. But while the names and places are foreign to us, the main character and speaker hasn't changed. His name is the Lord, and he has spoken, and we need to hear his word today, just as much as those people back then did. So let's listen to the word of the Lord. If you haven't already turned in your Bibles, it will help you if you follow along in the scriptures as I talk. Uh, you can find, we've provided pew Bibles, and you can find Amos on page 811 of those Bibles. I'm going to start reading in Amos chapter 1, verse 3. Amos 1, 3. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Damascus for three crimes, even four, because they threshed Gilead with iron sledges. Therefore, I will send fire against Haziel's palace, and it will consume Ben-Hadad's citadels. I will break down the gates of Damascus. I will cut off the ruler from the valley of Avon and the one who wields the scepter from Beth-Eden. The people of Aram will be exiled to Kerr. The Lord has spoken. I'm not going to read all the oracles or sermons or judgments. I'm going to refer to them simultaneously these prophecies against the pagan nations. But I encourage you to skim through them in chapter 1 and chapter 2, because while the names and the places are different in each prophecy of judgment, the message is the same in all six of these oracles of judgment against the nations. The message is the same. And we discover that message by looking at the patterns in the poetry. Do you notice any patterns? As you look through, any similarities? I want, to notice, I want us to notice together three, even four, similarities between the first six sermons of judgment against the nations. One, the word of the Lord. Do you see the top and tail of each oracle is the Lord says, like in chapter 1, verse 3, the Lord says, and then verse 5, the Lord has spoken. Got a nice sandwich there. This is the covenant Lord who has something to say, not merely to his people, but to the world. And this is perhaps the most important thing in this message for us today. The Lord has spoken and he has put powerful words into his servant, the prophet Amos's mouth in Amos 1 and 2. Everything will be fulfilled that the Lord says because of who he is. He's the Lord. He's the creator. He's the covenant God. And because of the power of his word. That's a big thing that we're going to be considering today and over the next few weeks. Number two, fire. Fire. The nations are meant to feel the heat. Right? Just like when a neighbor's house catches on fire, the people next door are going to evacuate too. Uh, fires can rage and they they're not always easily contained, as we know well. We know that very well here in the West. Here in these oracles of judgment, we see the fire kind of circling in around the compass and getting closer and closer as it swirls towards Israel. It starts with these pagan nations that have always been enemies of Israel, and then it's like they're they're cousins, and then we'll later come to Judah. Well, I won't I won't spoil spoil things. But here in Amos, the fire is the unrelenting judgment of the Lord. 
So that's number two, fire. Three, even four. Each nation is guilty of three crimes, even four. One Bible scholar says, so I don't know exactly what was going on here, the numerical idiom three, four basically suggests that three transgressions would have been sufficient for divine judgment to fall. But the fourth transgression puts the matter beyond doubt. The Lord has been patient with each nation, but now their sin has reached its fullness. You know, in Genesis 15, 16, the Lord says to Abram, later Abraham, that he's not going to judge the Amorites yet. They were really wicked. They were really bad. But he said that their iniquity hasn't reached its full measure. So he was patient. You know, the Lord isn't like a helicopter parent who is waiting for the kid to screw up so that they can yell at him and punish the kid. No, Psalm 103.8 says that the Lord is slow to anger. But once it's time for judgment, once that anger is unleashed, it's intense and unrelenting and consuming. So that's the three, four. Fourth, the fourth pattern I want you to see more briefly, the citadels, the gates, and the walls in each prophecy. The strength of the nations are pictured by these citadels, these walls, these gates. But what's happening to these citadels, these walls, and these gates? The strength of the nations, they're being consumed, aren't they? They're consumed in the Lord's fire. The confidence that the nations put in these, these fortresses, these gates, they're destroyed in the Lord's judgment. So if we put these three, even four, things together from the first six sermons of God's judgment against the nations, what do we learn? We want to put all these, these patterns together. What's the message that Amos is speaking to the nations? Well, the Lord has spoken judgment, fire, to consume the strength of the nations because they're super bad. The Lord has spoken judgment or fire to consume the strength of the nations because the nations are super bad. How bad? Let's look. Amos 1.3. So let's take a tour through the crimes of the nations. Amos 1.3. The people of Aram threshed Gilead with iron sledges. We're not a, as much agricultural as they were then. Sledges were heavy wooden platforms weighted above and underneath were sharp, sharp metal uh, for chopping the crop prior to the winnowing. But here, the sledges are used on people. Not literally, I don't think. But the people of Aram treated others as things, a mere crop for their personal profit. It escalates. Amos 1.6, the next sermon. Here the crime is selling people into slavery or exile like a commercial crop. Treating people like a crop to be profited from. We go on, Amos 1.9, we have more slavery. And in particular, not keeping a treaty and breaking this treaty to make a bigger profit over human souls. Let's keep going. Amos 1.11, what is the crime here? It's hate, rage, lack of compassion. Amos 1.13, this is a graphic image, ripping open pregnant women. Now this was probably literal so that the next generation would not revolt against the nation that had just conquered her. These are war crimes. Finally, Amos 2, 1, 
It seems strange to us today, but the burning of the bones of the dead was a pagan notion that would prevent future resurrection. They were so filled with hate and malice that they wanted to punish even in the afterlife. You know, all this savagery from 8th century B.C. may seem a little foreign to us, may seem a little strange, particularly that burning of the bones piece. But I don't think our, with all our technology, with all our sophistication, that we are any less savage 2,700 years later. Consider the mass killing of the Uyghurs in China by the Chinese government. Consider Kim Jong-un who has his political opponents imprisoned and killed in North Korea. Consider how Vladimir Putin assassinates his rivals. Consider the thousands, as we prayed for earlier, being killed in Ethiopia and the two million people displaced. Consider how our country abandoned our relationship with Afghanistan and how that has led to the deaths of many Afghans at the hands of the Taliban. You know, most everyone would recognize, whether you're religious or not, whether you're Christian or not, that there's wickedness in the world, that these things are awful. Everyone's going to agree, I would hope, that genocide, that slavery, that these war crimes are really bad. But then there's the -the under-the-surface wickedness that comes from the same heart that happens all around us. Abortion. Pornography. Abuse. The rich profiting off the poor slandering that person or that group of people that you disagree with on social media. All these are crimes against humanity. All these are crimes against the Imago Dei, treating people as things to be used so we can feel better about ourselves. You know, and we rage today, don't we? We rage in our world against the groups that we disagree with. We hate in our hearts. How does God feel about these things? How do you think God feels about these atrocities, these crimes against his image? We don't have to imagine how God feels. We know. He imprints it on our hearts. Uh, Just the thought of your child being, say, mocked for how they look is enough to cause our blood to boil. Just the thought of a family member being mocked and bullied on social media is enough for us to narrow our eyes and to clench our fists. You know, that that same anger and defensiveness and sense of protection that we feel over our people, that comes from the God of Amos. For the Lord has imprinted his image on every person he has made. The Lord sees every victim. The victims of Aram and Tyre, the victims of Putin and the Taliban, those people are precious to God. He made them, and he will have his vengeance on those who used other people for their own selfish purposes. His judgment will not relent. We can be confident of this, for the Lord has spoken. You know, we can be confident in God's word because God's word always wins. Every time God's word wins, it always accomplishes what it sets out to do. It never returns void, and it always has. God's word created the universe. 
He didn't struggle with that. God's word raises the dead. That wasn't a chore for him. And all of human history hangs on God's word. And yet, instead of putting our confidence in God's word, our trust in God's word, we, like the nations, put our hope in the strength of our citadels, our walls and our gates. Today, our walls and gates and citadels aren't necessarily those things, but there are jobs, maybe our homes, our retirement, the gifts that God has given us. We put our trust in our health or our family and relationships. Perhaps even as we think about our country, we think we've bought into the lie that our country will never fall due to the walls and the citadels that we have established. You know, our nation's walls might be prosperity. Uh, the gates might be our political system or our military might or our history that we thank God for of, of peace, at least in this land, relatively speaking. But ask Moab, ask the Ammonites, Edom, Tyre, Gaza, Damascus, how things turned out for them. You, you can't. They were destroyed. They were prospering one moment and consumed the next. Friends, the Lord's word is so much better than the words of our world. No word in our world can heal or bring justice to the evil of the nations. No word from the world can heal the deep wounds that you have felt for the wickedness perpetrated against you. You may be a survivor of abuse. Many of you have known great injustice. Or maybe as we went through the catalog of crimes against humanity in the nations this morning, you were just reminded of how troubled you are by the injustice in this world, by slavery, by racism, by abortion, or by some other injustice in this world. Amid all this evil and wickedness swirling all around us and sometimes penetrating into our hearts, what would it look like for you, what would it look like for us as a church to hope in the word of the Lord? What would it mean to entrust ourselves to this just judge who will make all things right by his word? You know, I think therapy is a gift from God. Counseling is huge. Medication can be helpful. A community of people who love you and care for you brings a large measure of healing and joy, even in the midst of injustice. These things can be means of entrusting ourselves to a faithful God who speaks or steps along the way as we seek to entrust ourselves to the Lord. But let's not confuse these God-given means as the final answer to injustice. The Lord has spoken a better word over human suffering and evil. And we trust him and 
his word over our lives. And we pray in the midst of the why God. We pray in the midst of the pain and the hurt. We pray two prayers simultaneously. We pray, how long, O Lord? How long? And we pray, Lord, I commit my cause to you. I commit my cause to you. Now, these, these kinds of prayers are an expression of trust in the just judge who promises to do what is right. Did you notice the verbs in chapter 1 and 2? He will do it. He spoke it, and it will happen. So we cry out to the one who has spoken. He will do it. Once he roars, the nations and the people that rage against him in wickedness will know the fury of his wrath. And we say, praise the Lord. But the Lord isn't merely roaring against those who commit evil out there. All those bad guys out there. Because if God is perfectly just, and he is, we know that he will also come for insiders. Those who look a lot like the nations, despite their privileged status, despite their self-righteousness. So that brings us to our second and final point, God's roar against the insiders. We'll pick it up in chapter 2, verse 4. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Judah for three crimes, even four. Because they have rejected the instruction of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. The lies that their ancestors followed have led them astray. Therefore, I will send fire against Judah and it will consume the citadels of Jerusalem. This is sermon number seven. Oracle number seven of judgment. And Amos speaks a word of judgment against his own country. Judah is not judged for her crimes against humanity, though. We see the crime here. These are crimes against Yahweh himself. But just like the nations, God will bring the city of peace, Jerusalem, down in judgment. Jerusalem will be destroyed just like the nations, and it was. You know, I think it's kind of hard to imagine like how Israel would have responded to this message of judgment against her southern neighbor, Judah. I think Israel might have started to feel the heat as Amos is zooming in. And I can just see the Israelite leaders coming up to, to Amos after his seventh sermon. They assume it's done, you know, seven sermons, the number of completion. Hey, thank you. Thank you so much, Amos, for coming all this way uh, from Judah to share your remarks with us this afternoon. But we don't want to keep you. You, we, you probably got to get going. You've given us seven really, really interesting sermons uh, today. And we really we think you got a great, a really bright future, Amos. Um, you've got this prophetic voice. We wouldn't have expected that coming from a sheep breeder. But one day you might even be famous, Amos. <laughs> but Amos wouldn't be famous. He is never mentioned outside of this book in the Bible. And he still had one more sermon. Surprise, I've given seven, but I have one more. And this last sermon of judgment isn't going to make him any friends. I don't think he's going to be getting a love offering or very many thank yous after this one. So let's listen to Amos' longest and most intense sermon 
This is Amos doing his best Jonathan Edwards imitation. This is Israel in the hands of an angry God. Let's listen. Amos chapter 2, verse 6. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Israel for three crimes, even four, because they sell a righteous person for silver and a needy person for a pair of sandals. They trample the heads of the poor on the dust of the ground and obstruct the path of the needy. A man and his father have sexual relations with the same girl, profaning my holy name. They stretch out beside every altar on garments taken as collateral, and in the house of their God they drink wine obtained through fines. Yet I destroyed the Amorite as Israel advanced. His height was like the cedars, and he was as sturdy as the oaks. But I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. And I brought you from the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness in order to possess the land of the Amorite. I raised up some of your sons as prophets and some of your younger men as Nazarites. Is this not the case, Israelites? This is the Lord's declaration. But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, do not prophesy. Look, I'm about to crush you in your place. As a wagon crushes when full of grain, escape will fail the swift The strong one will not maintain his strength, and the warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground. The one who is swift of foot will not save himself, and the one riding a horse will not save his life. Even the most courageous of the warriors will flee naked on that day. This is the Lord's declaration. Listen to this message that the Lord has spoken against you, Israelites, against the entire clan that I brought from the land of Egypt. I have known only you out of all the clans of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Oh my, Israel is in trouble. You know, take that wickedness of the surrounding nations you know, using people for profit, enslaving people, taking advantage of the poor. Yeah, Israel has done all that too and more. You know, take what Judah had done, breaking the covenant with the Lord on high, being led astray by false gods. Yeah, Israel was guilty of that too. You know, Israel's crimes against humanity and against the Lord were brimming over and spilling out. It had gotten bad. Father and son alike, the whole male community was participating in Baalism, which involved using prostitutes. We saw that in 2.7. The chosen people of Israel were even so bold to practice their idolatry, their worship of other gods, in front of God's holy altar. Amos 2.8. And they would stretch themselves out as they indulged their senses with wine obtained by fines, taking advantage of the poor, right in the Lord's presence, flaunting their wickedness. No shame. Chapter 2, verse 9 through 11, and 3, 1 and 2, reinforce that Israel's privileged status makes her crimes even worse. Right? With great privilege comes great responsibility. Israel had been the apple of God's eye. But she had turned rotten. She despised her chosen status and despised her salvation. Amos concludes 
this sermon against Israel with a series of questions. Look at Amos 3.3. Can two walk together without agreeing to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when it has no prey? Does a young lion growl from its lair unless it has captured something? Does a bird land in a trap on the ground if there is no bait for it? Does a trap spring from the ground when it has caught nothing? If a ram's horn is blown in a city, aren't people afraid? If disaster occurs in a city, hasn't the Lord done it? Indeed, the Lord God does nothing without revealing his counsel to his servants, the prophets. All of these questions, poetry, are meant to lead us to one chilling conclusion. The Lord has brought judgment, and how could he not? It's the law of cause and effect. Can the covenant between the Lord and his people be broken and there be no consequence? He wouldn't be God if he just swept it under the rug. So the divine predator, the Lord, will bring on Israel the curses, just as he promised, just as he said he would do. Does he not speak and act? This is no empty roar, but it is the roar before a lion pounces and devours its prey. The crushing weight will come down of God's just judgment on Israel, just as the images that I read earlier from verses 13 to 16 in chapter 2 illustrate. The just judge will do it, for he has spoken. He will judge the wicked world, and he will judge his people, for he is the Lord of all. And as I said earlier, if if anything, he holds his people to a higher standard because of all that he has given them. So Israel's punishment will be even more devastating. So how is Israel to respond to this? How are we to respond to this? Maybe this wasn't the, the warm, fuzzy message that you were expecting to hear when you came to church today. But we are the Israel of God. And we need to hear this. It's God's word to us. How do we respond? Amos 3.8 gets us going in the right direction. Amos 3.8. A lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who will not prophesy? We fear the one who speaks. We listen to the one who has spoken a word of just judgment. We listen to those who speak his word. And then we turn. We turn in repentance. We mourn our crimes against humanity. We mourn our idolatry for the way we have ignored God's word. Friends, Judgment Day is coming. It came for these nations. It came for Israel, and it will come for us. You know, all our movies and shows and books, they get at something that we know deep down to be true. There will be a reckoning. Crimes will not go unpunished. We will answer for the ways that we have sinned against God and against neighbor. This roar is meant to wake us up. To shake us out of a deep spiritual sleep, perhaps. So that we might come to an end of ourselves. 
and humble ourselves before this powerful word of the Lord and ironically find our refuge in the fire. The fire doesn't merely judge. It refines those who listen to God's word. So instead of running from the roar, we run to the sound of the lion's roar for safety. For the fear of God is not meant to distance us from him, but to draw us near. His roar is a call for his true people to come to him. It's like finding shelter in the eye of the storm. Now, Amos warns that there will be no escape from God's unrelenting fire. So if you hear the word of the Lord, fear means you obey, you come. You know, a, a father who, who sternly warns a child not to run out into the street speaks very kind of harshly and sternly. It's not being mean, not meaning to distance that child from himself. No, that, that father speaks intensely to warn the child of danger and invites the child to find refuge in his arms right after he has spoken to the child harshly or sternly. So what about you? Does the authority of the Lord cause you to run from him? Do you spurn his authority in your life? Or do you hear this roar as a summons to come and to live? Now, only in his word will we find safety in this world of lies. We know Jesus was the word of God, and he summons us to come to this just judge, trembling with fear and with joy. Jesus himself said, Tracy read it earlier in the service, Jesus said, I came to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already set ablaze. But I have a baptism to undergo, and how it consumes me until it is finished. Maybe as you've been listening to the sermon, you're like, well, that's the God of the Old Testament. That was Luke 12. Jesus brings the fire. And the fire was the word of the gospel. It was the power of God that consumed the walls and the citadels of this world. The Lord showed his power by coming in the word made flesh and then undergoing that baptism. It was a baptism of fire, death, and judgment. If you think of yourself as an outsider here this morning, maybe you're a friend of someone here, you consider yourself a non-Christian, God has a word for you. Christ underwent a baptism of judgment to save you from your sin. Christ underwent a baptism of judgment to save you from your sin. This is the surprising part of God's judgment. First, it falls on the innocent Son of God, just as we considered last week from Luke 23. The one who treated every human being with respect, who had compassion on every person he met, Though he was the king of heaven, he didn't consider equality with God as something to be exploited. But he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, a ransom for the nations. 
This is your unexpected Savior who speaks a better word than the promises of this world that call us to come. You know, I think in this church, and you'll often hear that the gospel is an invitation, right? It's an invitation to come. To come and lay down your arms against God, to come to an end of yourself, and to trust in him. And that is true, and you'll continue to hear that invitation. But considering what we've read here in Amos today, I think it's also true to say that the Lord, the king of the universe, doesn't merely invite us to come. Doesn't merely invite us to come. He commands us to come. He summons us. You must come. You were created to find safety and rest in this obedience of faith. So I'd encourage you today, if you're not sure if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, don't delay. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to obey in faith. Today is the day to find refuge from the Lord you know, my story is I've always been an insider, or at least as early as I can remember. I, I grew up in a religious home with uh, parents who loved Jesus. When I was a young child, I largely decided to follow Jesus because I was scared to death of hell. <laughs> you know, it seemed like a no-brainer to like a five-year-old mind. Got, you know, forgiveness of sins and eternal life on this hand, uh, fiery hell on this one. Let me choose that one. Fear is a powerful motivator isn't it? But our fears get more complex as we get older, but they don't go away. We get better at pretending that we're not afraid, uh, but these images from Amos 1 through 3 encourage us, stop pretending. Christian and non-Christian friend, hear the word of the Lord this morning and wake up to the horror of human sin. It is so much worse than we think. We try to block it out. We don't even like to think about death, the consequence of sin. We don't like to think about all the atrocities happening and even the things in our own heart. It is so much worse than we think. But the mystery and the wonder of the cross where Christ was baptized in fire for our salvation is so much greater than we could ever imagine. Outsiders, insiders, we have one hope. Fear the one who speaks. Come towards the fire. Warm yourself by the fire. As we see Jesus on the cross by faith, in our place, condemned he stood for all the ways that we have sinned against and abused other people, using other people. See Jesus hanging there on the cross by faith for the ways that you have turned from him and used God as a means to your own happiness and purpose rather than seeing God for who he is, the lion who roars in justice and in mercy. This is our God. He's not a tame beast. We can't domesticate him. We can't make him into our own image. Thinking of him as just that affirming guy up there who's just crazy about us. Yeah, he's full of love, but he's also full of justice. Don't pit one against the other. He is unlike 
anyone we have ever known. He is furious in his wrath, but abounding in patience and love to those who find refuge in him. Friends, the Lord has roared in his word. The sovereign Lord has spoken. It isn't surprising that he would roar in judgment against our wicked world. What's surprising is that he still speaks today. After all the wickedness that we have committed and that our world has done, he speaks today so that you might hear, so that you might listen, so that you might turn, so that we together might look to Christ, the better Israel, who brings mercy instead of judgment for all who find refuge in him. A lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord has spoken. What can we do but find refuge in him? Will you pray with me? Lord, we pray that you would plant your word deep in us. Help us to see Jesus lifted up for us the better word than the peace with you that we would seek to make on our own terms as we seek to at times bribe you with our good works. Father, forgive us for looking to the lies of this world to fulfill us. Lord, forgive us for running from your roar. Lord, we thank you that you come towards us in justice and in mercy. And Lord, you have shown us that at the cross. So Lord, we pray that we would come, that we would come by faith, sinners though we are, and that we would know your salvation. Lord, we can't do it on our own. We need your truth to be planted in us. Uh, So we ask all this in faith. In the name of Jesus, amen.